Part two, chapter eight of Nostromo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bologna Times. Nostromo by Joseph Conrad. Part two of chapter eight. To Charles Gould's fancy, it seemed that the sound must reach the uttermost limits of the province. Riding at night towards the mine, it would meet him at the edge of a little wood just beyond Rincon. There was no mistaking the growing mutter of the mountain pouring its stream of treasure under the stamps, and it came to his heart with the peculiar force of a proclamation thundered forth over the land and the marvelousness of an accomplished fact fulfilling an audacious desire. He had heard this very sound in his imagination on that far-off evening when his wife and himself, after a tortuous ride through a strip of forest, had reined in their horses near the stream, and had gazed for the first time upon the jungle-grown solitude of the gorge. The head of a palm rose here and there. In a high ravine round the corner of the San Tome mountain, which is square like a blockhouse, the thread of a slender waterfall flashed bright and glassy through the dark green of the heavy fronds of tree-ferns. Don Pepe, in attendance, rode up and, stretching his arm up the gorge, had declared with mock solemnity, Behold the very paradise of snakes, Signora! And then they had wheeled their horses and ridden back to sleep that night at Rincon. The alcade, an old skinny moreno, a sergeant of Guzman Bento's time, had cleared respectfully out of his house with his three pretty daughters to make room for the foreign senora and their worships, the caballeros. All he asked Charles Gould, whom he took for a mysterious and official person, to do for him was to remind the supreme government, el gobierno supreme, of a pension amounting to about a dollar a month to which he believed himself entitled. It had been promised to him, he affirmed, straightening his bent back martially, many years ago for my valor in the wars with the wild Indios when a young man, senor. The waterfall existed no longer. The tree-ferns that had luxuriated in its spray had died around the dried-up pool, and the high ravine was only a big trench half filled up with the refuse of excavations and tailings. The torrent, dammed up above, sent its water rushing along the open flumes of scooped tree-trunks, striding on trestle legs to the turbines, working the stamps on the lower plateau, the Mesa Grande of the San Tome Mountain. Only the memory of the waterfall, with its amazing fernery, like a hanging garden above the rocks of the gorge, was preserved in Mrs. Gould's watercolor sketch. She had made it hastily one day from a cleared patch in the bushes, sitting in the shade of a roof of straw erected for her on three rough poles under Don Pepe's direction. Mrs. Gould had seen it all from the beginning. The clearing of the wilderness, the making of the road, the cutting of new paths up the cliff face of San Tomé. For weeks together she had lived on the spot with her husband, 
and she was so little in Sulaco during that year that the appearance of the Gould carriage on the Alameda would cause a social excitement. From the heavy family coaches full of stately senoras and black-eyed senoritas, rolling solemnly in the shaded alley, white hands were waved towards her with animation in a flutter of greetings. Doña Emilia was down from the mountain. But not for long. Doña Emilia would be gone up the mountain in a day or two, and her sleek carriage mules would have an easy time of it for another long spell. She had watched the erection of the first frame house put up on the lower mesa for an office in Don Pepe's quarters. She heard with a thrill of thankful emotion the first wagon-load of ore rattled down the then-only chute. She had stood by her husband's side, perfectly silent, and gone cold all over with excitement at the instant when the first battery of only fifteen stamps was put in motion for the first time. On the occasion when the fires under the first set of retorts in their shed had glowed far into the night, she did not retire to rest on the rough cadre set up for her in the as yet bare frame house, till she had seen the first spongy lump of silver yielded to the hazards of the world by the dark depths of the Gould concession. She had laid her unmercenary hands, with an eagerness that made them tremble, upon the first silver ingot turned out still warm from the mould, and by her imaginative estimate of its power she endowed that lump of metal with a justificative conception, as though it were not a mere fact, but something far-reaching and impalpable, like the true expression of an emotion or the emergence of a principle. Don Pepe, extremely interested, too, looked over her shoulder with a smile that, making longitudinal folds on his face, caused it to resemble a leathern mask with a benignantly diabolic expression. Would not the muchachos of Hernandez like to get hold of this insignificant object that looks, por Dios, very much like a piece of tin? he remarked jocularly. Hernandez, the robber, had been an inoffensive small ranchero, kidnapped with circumstances of peculiar atrocity from his home during one of the civil wars, and forced to serve in the army. There his conduct as soldier was exemplary, till, watching his chance, he killed his colonel, and managed to get clear away. With a band of deserters, who chose him for their chief, he had taken refuge beyond the wild and waterless Bolson de Tonyaro. The haciendas paid him blackmail in cattle and horses. Extraordinary stories were told of his powers, and of his wonderful escapes from capture. He used to ride, single-handed, into the villages and the little towns on the campo, driving a pack-mule before him, with two revolvers in his belt, go straight to the shop or store, select what he wanted, and ride away unopposed because of the terror his exploits and his audacity inspired. Poor country people he usually left alone. The upper class were often stopped on the roads and robbed, but any unlucky official that fell into his hands was sure to get a severe flogging. 
The army officers did not like his name to be mentioned in their presence. His followers, mounted on stolen horses, laughed at the pursuit of the regular cavalry sent to hunt them down, and whom they took pleasure to ambush most scientifically in the broken ground of their own fastness. Expeditions had been fitted out, a price had been put upon his head, even attempts had been made, treacherously of course, to open negotiations with him, without in the slightest way affecting the even tenor of his career. At last, in true Costaguana fashion, the fiscal of Tenoro, who was ambitious of the glory of having reduced the famous Hernandez, offered him a sum of money and a safe conduct out of the country for the betrayal of his band. But Hernandez evidently was not of the stuff of which the distinguished military politicians and conspirators of Costaguana are made. This clever but common device, which frequently works like a charm in putting down revolutions, failed with the chief of vulgar salteadores. It promised well for the fiscal at first, but ended very badly for the squadron of lanceros, posted, by the fiscal's directions, in a fold of the ground into which Hernandez had promised to lead his unsuspecting followers. They came, indeed, at the appointed time, but creeping on their hands and knees through the bush, and only let their presence be known by a general discharge of firearms, which emptied many saddles. The troopers who escaped came riding very hard into Tonoro. It is said that their commanding officer, who, being better mounted, rode far ahead of the rest, afterwards got into a state of despairing intoxication and beat the ambitious fiscal severely with the flat of his sabre in the presence of his wife and daughters for bringing this disgrace upon the national army the highest civil official of tonoro falling to the ground in a swoon was further kicked all over the body and rawled with sharp spurs about the neck and face because of the great sensitiveness of his military colleague. This gossip of the inland campo, so characteristic of the rulers of the country, with its story of oppression, inefficiency, fatuous methods, treachery, and savage brutality, was perfectly known to Mrs. Gould. That it should be accepted with no indignant comment by people of intelligence, refinement, and character, as something inherent in the nature of things, was one of the symptoms of degradation that had the power to exasperate her almost to the verge of despair. Still, looking at the ingot of silver, she shook her head at Don Pepe's remark. If it had not been for the lawless tyranny of your government, Don Pepe, many an outlaw now with Hernandez would be living peaceably and happy by the honest work of his hands. Signora, cried Don Pepe, with enthusiasm, it is true. It is as if God had given you the power to look into the very breasts of people. You have seen them working round you, Doña Emilia, meek as lambs, patient like their own burrows, brave like lions. I have led them to the very muzzles of guns. I, who stand here before you, Signora, in the time of Pace, who was full of generosity, and in courage only approached by the uncle of Don Carlos here, as far as I know. No wonder there are bandits in the campo 
when there are none but thieves, swindlers, and sanguinary macaques to rule us in Santa Marta. However, all the same, a bandit is a bandit, and we shall have a dozen good straight Winchesters to ride with the silver down to Sulaco. Mrs. Gould's ride with the first silver escort to Sulaco was the closing episode of what she called My Camp Life before she settled in her townhouse permanently, as was proper and even necessary for the wife of the administrator of such an important institution as the San Tome Mine. For the San Tome Mine was to become an institution, a rallying point for everything in the province that needed order and stability to live. Security seemed to flow upon this land from the mountain gorge. The authorities of Sulaco had learned that the San Tome mine could make it worth their while to leave things and people alone. This was the nearest approach to the rule of common sense and justice Charles Gould felt it possible to secure at first. In fact, the mine, with its organization, its population growing fiercely attached to their position of privileged safety, with its armory, with its Don Pepe, with its armed body of Serenos, where, it was said, many an outlaw and deserter, and even some members of Hernandez's band, had found a place. The mine was a power in the land, as a certain prominent man in Santa Marta had exclaimed with a hollow laugh once, when discussing the line of action taken by the Sulaco authorities at a time of political crisis. "'You call these men government officials?' They? Never! They are officials of the mine, officials of the concession, I tell you. The prominent man, who was then a person in power, with a lemon-coloured face and a very short and curly, not to say woolly, head of hair, went so far in his temporary discontent as to shake his yellow fist under the nose of his interlocutor, and shriek, Yes! All! Silence! All! I tell you! The political jefe, the chief of the police, the chief of the customs, the general, all, all are the officials of that gold. Thereupon an intrepid but low and argumentative murmur would flow on for a space in the ministerial cabinet, and the prominent man's passion would end in a cynical shrug of the shoulders. After all, he seemed to say, what did it matter as long as the minister himself was not forgotten during his brief day of authority? But all the same, the unofficial agent of the San Tome mine, working for a good cause, had his moments of anxiety, which were reflected in his letters to Don José Avellanos, his maternal uncle. No sanguinary macaque from Santa Marta shall set foot on that part of Costaguana, which lies beyond the San Tome Bridge, Don Pepe used to assure Mrs. Gould, except, of course, as an honoured guest, for our Signor Administrator is a deep politico. But to Charles Gould, in his own room, the old major would remark with a grim and soldierly cheeriness, We are all playing our heads at this game. Don Jose Avellanos would mutter, Imperium in Imperio, Emilia, my soul, 
with an air of profound self-satisfaction which somehow in a curious way seemed to contain a queer admixture of bodily discomfort but that perhaps could only be visible to the initiated and for the initiated it was a wonderful place this drawing-room of the casa gould with its momentary glimpses of the master el senor administrator older harder mysteriously silent with the lines deepened on his english ruddy out-of-doors complexion flitting on his thin cavalryman's legs across the doorways either just back from the mountain or with jingling spurs and riding whip under his arm on the point of starting for the mountain then don pepe modestly marshal in his chair the lanero who seemed somehow to have found his martial jocularity his knowledge of the world and his manner perfect for his station in the midst of savage armed contests with his kind avellanos polished and familiar the diplomatist with his loquacity covering much caution and wisdom in delicate advice with his manuscript of a historical work on costaguana entitled fifty years of misrule which at present he thought it was not prudent if it were possible to give to the world these three and also dona emilia among them gracious small and fairy-like before the glittering tea-set with one common master thought in their heads with one common feeling of a tense situation with one ever-present aim to preserve the inviolable character of the mine at every cost and there was also to be seen captain mitchell a little apart near one of the long windows with an air of old-fashioned neat old bachelorhood about him slightly pompous in a white waistcoat a little disregarded and unconscious of it utterly in the dark and imagining himself to be in the thick of things the good man having spent a clear thirty years of his life on the high seas before getting what he called a shore billet was astonished at the importance of transactions other than related to shipping which take place on dry land almost every event out of the usual daily course marked an epoch for him or else was history unless with his pomposity struggling with a discomfited droop of his rubicund rather handsome face set off by snow-white close hair and short whiskers he would mutter ah that that sir was a mistake the reception at the first consignment of san tome silver for shipment to san francisco in one of the o s n company's mail-boats had of course marked an epoch for captain mitchell the ingots packed in boxes of stiff ox-hide with plated handles small enough to be carried easily by two men were brought down by the serenos of the mine walking in careful couples along the half-mile or so of steep zigzag paths to the foot of the mountain there they would be loaded into a string of two-wheeled carts resembling roomy coffers with a door at the back and harnessed tandem with two mules each waiting under the guard of armed and mounted serenos don pepe padlocked each door in succession and at the signal of his whistle the string of carts would move off 
closely surrounded by the clank of spur and carbine, with jolts and cracking of whips, with a sudden deep rumble over the boundary bridge, into the land of thieves and sanguinary macaques, Don Pepe defined that crossing. Hats bobbing in the first light of the dawn on the heads of cloaked figures, Winchesters on hip, bridle hands protruding lean and brown from under the falling folds of the ponchos, the convoy skirting a little wood along the mine trail between the mud huts and low walls of Rincon increased its pace on the Camino Real, mules urged to speed, escort galloping, Don Carlos riding alone ahead of a dust storm affording a vague vision of long ears of mules, of fluttering little green and white flags stuck upon each cart, of raised arms in a mob of sombreros with the white gleam of ranging eyes, and Don Pepe hardly visible in the rear of that rattling dust-trail with a stiff seat and impassive face, rising and falling rhythmically on an ewe-necked, silver-bitted, black brute with a hammer-head. The sleepy people in the little clusters of huts, in the small ranches near the road, recognized by the headlong sound the charge of the San Tomé silver escort towards the crumbling wall of the city on the campo side. They came to the doors to see it dash by over ruts and stones, with a clatter and clank and cracking of whips, with a reckless rush and precise driving of a field battery hurrying into action and the solitary English figure of the Senor Administrador riding far ahead in the lead. In the fenced roadside paddocks, loose horses galloped wildly for a while. The heavy cattle stood up breast-deep in the grass, lowing mutteringly at the flying noise. A meek Indian villager would glance back once, and hasten to shove his loaded little donkey bodily against a wall, out of the way of the San Tomé silver escort, going to the sea. A small knot of chilly leperos under the stone horse of the Alameda would mutter, Caramba! on seeing it take a wide curve at a gallop and dart into the empty street of the Constitution, for it was considered the correct thing, the only proper style by the mule-drivers of the San Tomé mine to go through the waking town from end to end, without a check in the speed as if chased by a devil. The early sunshine glowed on the delicate primrose, pale pink, pale blue fronts of the big houses with all their gates shut yet, and no face behind the iron bars of the windows. In the whole sunlit range of empty balconies along the street, only one white figure would be visible high up above the clear pavement, the wife of the senor administrador, leaning over to see the escort go by to the harbor, a mass of heavy, fair hair twisted up negligently on her little head, and a lot of lace about the neck of her muslin wrapper. With a smile to her husband's single, quick, upward glance, she would watch the whole thing stream past below her feet with an orderly uproar, till she answered by a friendly sign the salute of the galloping Don Pepe, the stiff deferential inclination with a sweep of the hat below the knee. The string of padlocked carts lengthened. The size of the escort grew bigger as the years went on. Every three months, 
an increasing stream of treasure swept through the streets of Sulaco on its way to the strong room and the OSN Company's building by the harbor, there to await shipment for the north, increasing in volume and of immense value also. For, as Charles Gould told his wife once with some exultation, there had never been seen anything in the world to approach the vein of the gold concession. For them both, each passing of the escort under the balconies of the Casa Gould was like another victory gained in the conquest of peace for Sulaco. End of Part 2 Chapter 8